You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Allison Tate is an Australian freelance writer, blogger, and author with more than 20 years professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here speaking with uh, my wonderful co-host, Alison Tate. How are you, Alison? I'm very well, thank you, Val. I'm a little cold. It's all a bit cold in my lovely old weatherboard house down here on the south coast. It looks beautiful from the outside and it's like a freezer inside, but, you know, you get that in the big jobs. Um, <laughs> but apart from that, I'm really well. And you? I'm here in a T-shirt because I have the heater on. <laughs> <laughs> we talk about this every time. <laughs> all right. I That's know. what they're for. I know. Anyway, what have you been up to apart from being cold? Well, I'm I'm finding I find myself in a very very interesting position at the moment because I'm in what you could call the holy trinity of the publishing world. Ooh. I am proofreading book 1 of the Mapmaker Chronicles. I am editing book 2 of the Mapmaker Chronicles and I am writing book 3 of the Mapmaker Chronicles. Wow. So I have Yes, I'm doing all stages at the same time. It's quite an interesting moment for me. But are you going to be really sick of maps by the end of it or writing? <laughs> no, I, to be honest with you, like I, I have to admit that by the time you get to the proofing stage, you're probably going to be pretty happy never to see the book again, um, which is unfortunately not going to happen because, you know, I've got to read it to my youngest son yet. We're still working on that. Um, but I, you know, there is a stage where you, you get to the point where you just think, oh, oh, surely this is finished now, like really. Um, but I am so loving writing book three. It's just, honestly, I, I just am having the best fun with it. And right. I think because I've spent so much time with my characters now, um, I just love going back to them. I, mm. I don't know how I'm going to say goodbye to them at the end of book three. I'm going to have to write books four, five and six just to keep myself entertained. <laughs> I, I have no doubt that that's what's going to happen. Well, I, don't, I, mean, I can only hope because I just sort of like I thought to myself, oh, I'm going to finish book three and this year's been so busy and then what's going to happen? Like next year I'm like, hmm, what am I going to do? <laughs> and then you're going to have the challenge of trying to cast an actor into the role that doesn't grow up too quickly no, or I, voice no, breaks. I, I don't have to do that because my oldest son, has just put his hand up. He said, so when they make the movie, I'm going to be Quinn, aren't I? And I went, um, (laughs) (laughs) sure you are. He'll be like 28 by then, so I think we'll be right. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to be Quinn's dad. Exactly. And what about you? What are you up to? Well, uh, for reasons that I'm not entirely sure how this happened, um, I have been travelling here, there and everywhere and in four days, I've been from Sydney to Apollo Bay, which is on the Great Ocean Road. I was helping a friend on her book. We had a mini writer's retreat and mm. then went to uh, the Melbourne CBD where I did a one-day workshop and then went to Perth where I did a half-day workshop and then caught the red eye back to Sydney so I could be home with my babies and somehow managed to squeeze that into four days. Wow. That's yeah. really impressive. I watched you do that, you know, via social media because that's our, you know, main 
sort of connection these days. Mm-hmm. But um, I yeah, I was kind of quite amazed every time every time I looked you were somewhere else <laughs> well I got back on Sunday morning and um, pretty much just collapsed for the rest of the day and just lay in bed with uh, you know my pets and you know drifted in and out of sleep and watched Foxtel yeah well anyway what's been happening in the world of writing and blogging and publishing this week um, let's see. Well, on our list, we have an interesting post that I came across uh, called Book Cover, sorry, Book Cover Clichés. Mm, Why, say that fast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Why using them will actually help you sell more books. And it's really interesting because what they've done is they've, it's from a blog called Creative Indie. And uh, what they've done is they've compiled a, quite a number of books that are really similar and that are pretty much cliched. And um, go, they, they say um, there's one that's the scary silhouette man and it's yes. always some, you know, silhouette of a guy heading into the woods or up some dark alley or something like that. Um, then there's the bloke in hood, which is very much the... Assassin's Creed kind of cover of someone in a hoodie um, or in a in a medieval type hoodie where there's a cape attached, then there might be a sword in the background or something. And yes. uh, there's also things like lots of black and red with a gothic font, typically associated with vampires. Yes. Of course, now we have seen high heels and lots of grey. Yes. <laughs> thanks to. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. But one that we do see a lot of, I'm seeing a lot of these days, is um, a child's sad face, accompanied always with a handwriting style font. Yes. So (laughs) what's your book going to be? Hey, well, <laughs> so funny you say that because um, I, when I, after I'd written it and, um, you know, the, uh, the publisher had agreed to publish it, which was a very exciting day for me. And I started to, because you don't actually really think about this kind of stuff until you've, until you're along the journey. Like I never really thought this book would have this kind of cover. Mm. And um, I was absolutely convinced that it was going to be boys in cloaks mm-hmm. i was convinced of it because it's a you know it's a fantasy adventure and it's it's uh, you know young young boys and it's maps and it's you know excitement and it's all that kind of stuff so i had in my head that that's what it would be and i was kind of because there's a certain genre in in boys fiction that that has that sort of look about it mm. and um and the publisher surprised me with a just an amazing cover. I'm so excited about the cover, mm. um, and it's quite different. And I'm working on uh, putting together a website for the Mapmaker Chronicles at the moment, and I'm going to um, I'm hoping to get that done in the next few weeks. Put the cover up on there, um, but it's just yeah, it's quite different. And and it was a real pleasant surprise for me because I was convinced I was sure it was going to be boys boys in cloaks it's I a thought great that's cover I love it I yeah. think it's fantastic it's sort of a little bit mysterious and yet very adventurous and it does make it's in such a it's interesting such a different people judge by a book <laughs> what am I saying people judge a book by its cover it's, it's yeah they just do you know yeah. they, we're told not to but they absolutely do and your cover is so important in leaping off the shelf and in simply getting people to pick it up well that's right but it also needs to and, and I do tend to agree with with this particular blog post that we're talking about in the sense that yes there's a similarity with them but um, I know as a reader like you want to know what you're getting 
when you say you judge a book by by its cover, you do, but you want an idea as a as a reader of what it is that that you've picked up something that's going to be about the right thing for what you're looking for. Particularly mm. if you're trying a new author, you're kind of like thinking. So you know, by giving you the shadowy road to nowhere, um, <laughs> spooky road to nowhere, you know, you you kind of get an idea of what you're what you're going to be getting with that. And I guess you know, I don't tend to pick up. I have to admit, I don't tend to pick up covers with just, you know, sad children's faces and handwriting on them because I, <laughs> I, I just don't want to read them. As a mum, yeah. I, I can't read. I just, I stopped reading those sorts of books the minute I had children because yeah. all of a sudden I could cast my own children in those roles and yeah. I just didn't want to know about it, you know. So you, you do need to know where you are. Like you've got to be able to locate yourself on the map, so to speak, you know, mm. so I think anyway. Um, I think what's interesting is if you're an author, should you go down that route because you actually know those work or should you try and stand out and do something different? Well, I guess that's always, you know, that's always a, a, um, a quandary. Mm. Um, but I guess that's another reason from my perspective that, you know, that I went with a mainstream publisher rather than self-publishing something was because I... I went with people who have an idea of where this book will fit in the market and yeah. what kind of cover is going to work for that market. Mm. And I think that that kind of expertise is um, is very hard to come by if you self-publish. Yeah. That's so it. Let's move on to uh, the next thing on our list. What else is happening? Well, I, I guess um, something that I've seen a lot and uh, Jane Friedman, who is a very um, – very how vocal um, person in the publishing and writing space and if you're not following her on Twitter or looking at her blog then it's a great idea to do that and I will put her Twitter handle in the show notes Um, but she shared a post uh, earlier this week about um, it was in the New York Times and it's about why writers are opening up about money or the lack thereof and there has been if you have been sort of like flitting about the internet as I do on a regular basis. There have been a lot of posts lately, probably in the last six to 12 months particularly, about where writers are sharing what they're earning. And this is something that, you know, they've never really done before. Like I, you know, before I wrote my book and 10 years ago when I really first started writing fiction, I had no idea what you could expect to get for a book if you actually ever got around to selling one or how it worked or anything like that whereas now there are a lot of posts out there and this particular story in the New York Times is a very very good list of a lot of those of the better of those posts um, and where they've appeared and what they're about and I'm not just talking about um, novels there's freelance writers talking about it the novelist Emily Gould wrote an essay where she talked about how she she got a huge advance for her first book um, and thought that she was going to be set for life. So she spent it all, <laughs> That's <not> as you do, <laughs> and then, you know, and then struggled to, to produce a second book and so she was, you know, you know, in penury for quite some time. So there's those sorts of things um, and, you know, we're seeing a lot more of it in the Australian um, in the Australian sort of publishing sphere as well. And it's just, I just thought it was interesting and I think it's worth having a look at some of those posts to, to give you an idea of what's being said. But, I, you know, what do you think about this? Well, what no, do you think about the fact that writers are writing about how much they earn? Well, they can write about how much they earn because, you know, we can publish anything these days so anyone can blog about whatever they want. So previously they probably just talked about it in coffee shops to their friends. Yes. Um, but now they can tell the world. But obviously you've been, um, following this, what are some of the key themes in what they have been talking about? 
Well, the key theme is essentially that writers don't make as much money as you think they do. That's the overall theme, seems to be, like with a lot of them. It's all about um, the fact that there's this mystique that authors earn a whole lot of money, but they really don't, Um, which, I mean, I guess from my perspective, I don't find particularly earth-shattering or mind-boggling because I just never really, in my mind, you know, Stephen King makes a lot of money, but not very many other people do. (laughs) Stephen King um, is an exceptional case. I would probably yeah. argue that maybe the writers who are making, who are making a very decent income or a lot of money, are actually too busy making the money writing about things that aren't about how much they earn. <laughs> that's so true, isn't it? <laughs> you um, know, if that's if, very true. If you've got the time to be doing that, maybe you should be channeling your energy yep. into writing. Um, something that is going to earn you money. <laughs> it's true. And I, I think the other thing that comes through um, in a lot of the pieces that I've read is a kind of a strange sense of, I don't know, like I guess maybe because my I've been a professional writer pretty much my whole working life and I have seen how it works and I've always written for magazines and I've always done that sort of thing. Um, I don't think I ever thought I was going to write a book and it was going to set me up for life. I just always assumed that I'd be doing other things as well. And I think that in this, you know, the way that the publishing industry is set up now, I don't think you can expect to do one thing. I I just think that that's, you can't expect that. If that happens for you, then, you know, hallelujah, let's have a parade. But I think most people are going to need to be doing um, are going to be need to having a few strings to their bow if they want to work solely as a writer. Yeah. And I think that that's something that um, that you need to think about. I don't think you can think I'm going to write one book and that's me done forever. Yeah, absolutely. In the same way as if you were a human resource, resources consultant or a, man, a change management consultant, you don't just have one client or one job. You have lots going at once. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's just the way it is. Yeah. So, let's move on to the craft of writing. What have we got this week? The craft, ah, oh, we have got, now this is an interesting post again. I'd, like, we, I was looking around, I was thinking to myself, oh, I need to read a writing book, I need to find a craft book, I need to do something useful that I can talk <laughs> about in my podcast. Um, and I came across a post on BuzzFeed, which is a great collator of and curator of content in many ways, I think. And... Um, it's a post called 37 Books Every Creative Person Should Be Reading. And there's a list there of lots of different types of books, not just writing books. Mm-hmm. And I think that the trap that a lot of writers fall into is they think that they must just read writing books. Yeah. But getting that creativity is a huge part of what we do as writers. And so it's a list of 37 books Um curated by the BuzzFeed staff um, of different types of, of, of books, you know, Steal Like an Artist by Austin Kleon, Manage Your Day-to-Day, Build Your Routine, Find Your Focus. Those kinds of books I think are very, like productivity books, very, very useful for writers. Um, the Artist's Way, The Writing Life, lots of different things. So I think that it's worth having a look at that list and it's choosing a, a couple mm. that you think might, you know, might kickstart your creativity in maybe a slightly different way. It's also a great example, to be honest, of how to do a, a nice list, listicle, a nice list blog post because the way 
way they've um, done the images, they haven't simply just put the uh, JPEG of the cover. What they've done is they've placed the uh, the actual book in a situation that's that's very attractive, that's very creative as well. And every single one of those images is um, is just a, a, a nice a nice photo in itself. Um, very true. Uh, I totally agree that. Uh, you know, we often fall in the trap that we should go to, you know, seminars, um, uh, author talks, or or we need to read books on writing. But in fact, other aspects of creativity are really important. I'm trying to get into the habit, and I encourage other people too as well, and this is mentioned in Julia Cameron's Artist's Way, is to take yourself out on a creative date every ideally every week but that's a bit difficult sometimes so you know Mm. I'm aiming for every fortnight where you just take yourself off to an art gallery say or last week I went to see Les Mis in Melbourne so I managed to squeeze that in to the the four days and it was just awe-inspiring and it you know it didn't make me want to sort of you know become a musical star but Interestingly, it was so good to see that incredible talent that it, that sort of thing inspires you to become a better writer, just to reach further and to go higher in your own creative pursuits. So it's, it's, it, it's very worthwhile to take yourself out of your space and explore other aspects of creativity as well. You're so right, and I need to do that too. Yes. Yes. We all do. We all do. So what else have we got in the world of blogging? Well, I, I just wanted to share with everybody, um, so as social media chicky for the Australian Writers' Centre, um, I, I do like find and share an awful lot of content and this particular blog post got more interest, attention, shares, clicks, whatever, um, than anything else I've ever shared and I found that really fascinating and the name of the post, it's on a um, blog called Positive Writer and the name of the post is How to Become a Prolific Writer While Holding Down a Day Job. Great. And it's a fantastic headline. I just think if, you, if you're looking for, you know, interest and traffic and things like that, think about your headlines and that is a great headline. It's so clickable. There's no way. Because most people are doing just that. They are trying to fit their fiction in mm. or their writing in around the, de- the dreaded day job. Mm. And um, the, this particular guy, Brian Hutchinson, shares how he writes and holds down a day job at the same time. And I think he wrote, I think he wrote at the end of this, 400,000 words in a year while holding down a day job. (laughs) And I think it's worth reading just Mm. to see how he did it. And, of course, it's all about consistency. It's all about a writing routine. It's all about the fact that you can't watch telly as much and expect to write as well. It's it's all the things that you probably know um, but maybe just haven't quite got around to doing as yet. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, it's worth having a read. As I said, if only for the headline. Read it for the headline. (laughs) (laughs) And it's all about finding those pockets of time, you know, like if you've got half an hour on the bus or if when you're waiting for a friend at coffee, that sort of thing. But I I know people say, oh, but I don't, I can't get into the right headspace. Well, train yourself to get into the right headspace. And and you can do do that. I think that I honestly think you can do that because I started. So when I started writing fiction seriously, I I had a young baby. I was still freelancing and I was doing you know other things and uh, you know I was making my mortgage payments as well. Mm. And I found that I I had to fit 
the freelance writing in during naps, which sometimes lasted only 40 minutes at a time, as well as trying to focus on getting some writing done. And I think that it's a matter, like when I first started, I was like, oh, how am I going to do this? Because I was never particularly disciplined. I am the world's biggest procrasty cleaner, <laughs> procrasty blogger, procrasty whatever I can find. Mm-hmm. And um, it became, it, but, but what it taught me, this business of having to do it in nap times was, okay, you've got 45 minutes, you've got to get something done. Yeah. And I think that that's been an invaluable, invaluable lesson for me because I, I still do it today. Like I, yesterday I had a whole lot of, I was writing the world's most turgid feature and it was long and I was struggling so badly. But I got to the end of the day and I had 45 minutes before I had to pick my kids up Mm. and I wrote 1,200 words on my manuscript in that 45 minutes. Well, it was just like I've got 45 minutes. I'm going to sit down and write something. And I think that you have to do that. Yeah, I think it's an excuse when people, if you're saying to yourself, you know, I need the right environment, I need to be sitting in a beautiful house overlooking the ocean so I can get inspired, that's just an excuse. You just need to, you know, get your ass in that chair and and, and write. Yes, Mm. indeed. So let's move on to our writer in residence this week and her name is Joanna Rakoff and I loved interviewing Joanna because I really loved reading her book which is My Salinger Year. Now, My Salinger Year is actually about, uh, it's a memoir and it's about Joanna's first year of work where she worked in a literary agency that actually represented J.D. Salinger. Now, mind you, this was only in 1996, uh, you know, when the internet and computers were already in existence, but this literary agency did not own a computer. Um, Everything was typed on, you know, electric typewriters. Each individual fan letter that was responded to that came to J.D. Salinger was a form letter, but it had to be individually typed. It was um, in a little bit in the dark ages, but it's a fascinating um, uh, look into that literary world, but it's also a beautiful memoir, and um, I really enjoyed speaking to Joanna about it. So um, here's Joanna. Joanna Rakoff's novel is My Salinger Year, about the year she spent working at the literary agency of legendary author J.D. Salinger. While this is a memoir, she has also penned the fictional novel A Fortunate Age, which was a New York Times editor's choice and a San Francisco Chronicle bestseller. She has written for The New York Times, The Los Angeles Times, Vogue and many other publications. So thank you so much for joining us today, Joanna. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, we're really excited because I have been reading my Salinger year and I cannot put the book down. It's fantastic and we're very excited about it. But just for some of our listeners who uh, are not yet familiar with it, haven't read it yet, tell us what it's about. So my Salinger year chronicles the year um, I spent working for J.D. Salinger's agent, um, who was the president of one of New York's oldest and most storied literary agencies. Um, some people believe that they're actually the oldest. There's, it's sort of one of those New Yorky debates where some agents say they're the oldest and others say another agency is the oldest. But um, they've been around since the 20s. They represented a lot of great writers of the 20s, 30s, and 40s, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald being the sort of most well-known one. But also people like Dylan Thomas, Agatha Christie, Langston Hughes, 
And um, I went to work for them in 1996 um, when they were a bit past their prime. Um, my agent, who had been there for decades, was a person who was primarily dealing with the estates of these agents from previous eras. Um, and her main living client was Salinger. Um, I was 23. I had just dropped out of grad school in London. Um, I had had a somewhat sheltered upbringing, kind of in um, a um, sort of ex-urban, um, not quite suburban, but not quite rural area um, outside of New York, um, though my parents were sort of staunch New Yorkers. Um, my dad was from the Lower East Side. He'd been a comedian, you know, um, in the kind of heyday of the Borscht Belt. Um, and I moved to New York really not understanding um, how much money I needed to survive or anything about the story, community or anything at all. My parents were very opposed to all this. Anyway, basically it's this year in which um, I sort of um, become rather less naive in all ways um, and um, also um, have this kind of um, initiation by fire into the world and cult of Salinger. I'd not read Salinger when I started the agency and I didn't really understand the extent of um, both his reclusiveness and also the extent to which the agency was charged with protecting his privacy because that was a big part of my job. Mm-mm. And what gave you the idea to write this memoir? Because this is your second book and your first, which was A Fortunate Age, was a novel published in 90, 2009. So why did you decide on memoir this time around? Well, in a way, I didn't. In a way, memoir decided on me. Okay. <laughs> so- so I, um, 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 for years, um, I, well, okay, well, I'll just tell you too much because this is a writer's podcast. Go so for I, it. Um, I worked in publishing for a few years knowing that that was not what I wanted, that I wanted to be a writer, but I was primarily writing poetry mm. um, and sort of working slowly on stories, having trouble figuring out what I wanted to do with fiction. Um, I ended up doing an MFA program in poetry at Columbia in, in New York. Mm-hmm. Um and um, publishing poetry um, was very immersed in the world of poetry, which is kind of its own particular subset of the literary universe, at least in America. It's somewhat rarefied, um, very academic. And um, so while I was doing that program, um, one of my uh, professors, who was a, um, an editor at The New Yorker, said, you know, I, let, your poetry aside, I really think you should be writing book criticism and journalism, you really have a feel for it. Your papers for this class don't read like academic papers. They read more like magazine journalism. I'm going to put you in touch with some people. And um, in, in a, I guess maybe not a coincidence, another professor of mine who was a writer at The New Yorker said the same thing. So meanwhile, I, you know, I was writing poetry. I felt comfortable with that. I was publishing it. Um, but I, what I really wanted was to work on fiction, was to figure that out. So I, in short, set myself up kind of writing for magazines, um, mainly writing on books while I very slowly worked on a fortunate age. And um, I did some stints, you know, working in-house at magazines and so on. Um, so at one point, um, while I was um, working on this novel and writing for magazines, I sort of had a low. Like I was having trouble pitching stories, um, making a living, and just was confused about what to do. I felt like I needed a full-time staff job. I didn't know how to get one you know, because I didn't have a journalism degree and you kind of, I felt like you needed that. So I went in and um, I went into the New York Times where I knew, um, I knew a lot of people, but I happened to know this kind of legendary 
newsman. Let's just call him that because he was really from a different era. He is from a different era. His name is Ralph Blumenthal. He's won every major journalism award. He's a hard journalist, though he writes in arts and culture too. And I, I knew him because I'd profiled him actually. And I said, you know, please just help me. What do I do? Should I be trying to get a staff job here? What should I do? And we ended up just talking because he's this veteran reporter. Um, he really can get a person to kind of spill everything about their life. And that's what he did to me. He kind of said, let's just put this question aside. Let's just have lunch, basically. And I ended up explaining that I had answered J.D. Salinger's fan mail. And he kind of put down his fork, put down his coffee cup and said, essentially, Joanna, he has a sort of New York accent that I'm not going to try to replicate because <laughs> um, I'll do a terrible job of it. My dad could do it, but I couldn't. You know, he said, you know, are you crazy? Why have you not written on this? And he then gave me the talk, which was, you know, for me, I think he's probably given the talk to a lot of young writers. And the talk for me was, you know, you're writing these kind of um, these journalistic pieces, but your strength is your voice. Yeah. You know, you are a literary writer. You know, you're a poet. You're a writer of fiction. Anyone can write a profile of me. Anyone, mm. you know, can write this kind of straight journalism. What you bring to the work that you do is your own voice. You're not a hard news reporter. You're not me. You know, um, you need to be writing about your own life. So you need to pitch a story about this. This is the story that's going to, you know, propel you into not having trouble anymore getting um, assignments because you, you need to be writing personal essays. Mm. So um, I thought, because the agency was a place that um, so valued privacy, um, I thought, well, he's right, but I can't do that because I'd be betraying the agency. They don't want their secrets revealed. And also, in answering Salinger's fan mail, you know, I was writing these personal letters to fans, and I really kind of broke their rules. Mm. So anyway, now I'll cut to the real story. So I continued trying to write my novel and writing for magazines. And um, one day, I had a meeting at a glossy magazine, and I had all these pitches um, prepared for them. And so I gave them all my pitches, which were pretty standard stories. And then without intending to, I said, also, I could write this piece about how I answered J.D. Salinger's fan mail. And of <laughs> course, they said, that's the story we want. Yes. And I wrote this huge story and all these people approached me, you know, agents, editors, about turning it into a book. I said, no, my, I had an agent already. She said, no, 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 you're not going to do that. You don't want to be another Salinger girl, another person, you know, because there have been these other memoirs about Salinger. You don't want to be that. Keep writing your novel. Wrote my novel. You know, it sold in a somewhat big way. It came out in a somewhat big way. Um, started working on another novel. Um, and um, then Salinger died. And I found myself devastated by it. I ended up sort of propelling that grief and confusion into a different essay about Salinger, which was quite different because by this point, many years had passed, you know, yeah. um, more than 10 years had passed since that 14 years had passed since I worked at the agency. I was, you know, almost 40. I was in a very different place in the world. And, um, I, um, wrote this essay. It became a documentary for the BBC and with each iteration of this story, my perspective on it kept switching. And um, finally, when that documentary, um, even before it came out, it was circulated internally um, at the BBC and, you know, editors saw it in the UK and I was approached again. And I again said no, but they, they kept at it. They were very relentless, honestly. And my agent finally said, you know, 
I think these editors have a point. Maybe you should consider this. Mm. And I actually still said no. Mm. And this went on for months. And finally, she said, you know, why don't you try to sit down and write a bit of it? And I said, okay. And um, I took a very long walk. And the first few pages kind of came into my head. And I sat down and wrote them. And at that point, I said to her, okay, I can do this. And I put the novel that I was working on, which I'm still working on, it's called Money or Love. Hopefully I'll be done in a year or so. I put that aside and spent a couple years working on this. Wow. That's a very long story. So it was many, many, many years. And I kept saying no. I kept saying no. I don't like to make the story even longer. Please forgive me, Valerie. I like, I just like, I was not a memoir person as part of it. I, even though I'm rambling on about my life, (laughs) I'm not a person who writes about myself that much. As a journalist, I really, I loved writing profiles. I loved writing about other people. I was a book critic. I liked writing essays that were about, um, you know, propelled by ideas rather than my own story. Mm. I was never the kind of person who would write a book review that started with, when I was 24, blah, blah, blah. You know, I would write book reviews that didn't even have the first person in them. And it was very hard for me to wrap myself around the idea of writing a whole book about myself. Okay, so you kept saying no, but were you saying no because of the privacy issue, because um, you felt that you didn't want to be the memoir kind of thing because you were used to doing a, a more objective piece? What were, were you not comfortable until after Salinger died? What re- why were you saying no? You know, at first I was saying no Um, when that first essay came back, which was back in 2002 or 2003, so long ago that I can't even remember um, which which year it was. Um, It was because, I guess, two reasons. First, because I honestly did not see a larger story. That essay was very much about um, how I came to start sending personal responses to Salinger's fans, Mm -hmm. and it seemed to me a finite story. The essay is actually kind of stylized in a way, And um, I wrote it knowing how it was going to begin and end and what the structure was. Mm. And um, it was very emotional for me writing it and very difficult. And um, I mean, it actually was easy. The essay came easily to me. But going through the sort of emotional process of remembering my way back into that point in my life when I was 23, which was a very difficult period for me. Like, I'm a person who... um, uh, so I'm 42 now. I just I turned 42 a couple of months ago, and I am so happy to be in my 40s. Like, I do, I do not. I don't in any way. I'm not. You know, you sort of like see movies about people who are sort of sad and depressed about turning 40 and feel like, oh my god, I'm ugly now or whatever. I don't feel that way at all. I don't want to be 23 or 22 again. That was a very difficult, confusing period in which. I didn't know myself that well, not that I totally know myself now, but I just, I felt that I was running on autopilot. I didn't know what I was doing and I made some very poor choices and I was, you know, there was a lot that was exciting about that and I think that's captured in the book. There were things that I loved about that moment in my life, but there was a lot that was painful Um, in particular, like there's one plot thread having to do with um, a person known in the book as my college boyfriend who I'd kind of abandoned without knowing why. And there was a way in which um, I felt uh, like I was a bit at odds with my parents who were very disapproving of the choices I made and what I wanted to do with my life. And um, 
communication with them was not great. And I loved them so much. And there had been some really awful, tragic things that happened to our family. And it was very hard for me to feel that I was hurting them because of the stuff that had happened. Um, And so going back to that period was very hard for me. And so the idea of doing it at length and revisiting it again was difficult to think about. Um, But I also really, I honestly didn't see a bigger story, a book-length story. I thought, how could I make this into a book? And then as the years went by, as I was older, um, part of what happened in researching this documentary is that I was older, so I had more distance from this period, and it was less painful and raw for me. Um, But I also, with the documentary... I did a huge amount of research, which, you know, was also procrastination, but that's a whole other story. (laughs) You know, I wanted to think, I was working with a producer and he said to me, you know, why don't we talk a little bit about Mark David Chapman, you know, who was the person who killed John Lennon um, and was obsessed with The Catcher in the Rye. And he said, well, let's, you know, can you do some research into him? So I started, I spent a whole week, you know, nine to five researching the various crazed killers who'd been obsessed with Salinger. And I spent a week or two researching what was going on in 1996, that year that I worked there, thinking about what was going on in the world. You know, how peculiar was it that I worked at this agency that um, was anti-technology? So that's a whole other aspect of the story. That that they don't have computers. In 1996, my boss thought computers were a passing fad. Um, The internet was a passing fad. You know, and... um, I was thinking about, I just wanted to figure out exactly how strange that was. I knew it was very strange, but I looked into what was going on in 1996 and I saw that was the year that the Times launched their website. And I actually knew that at the time. I remember when it happened because a friend of mine from college was their first employee. He was the Times webmaster. (laughs) So I, you know, I remember him getting that job. Mm -hmm. So I became interested in, basically I saw that there was a larger story and that's why I eventually agreed to, to do it. Um, when it was just a story about me and my mm. small life, it seemed so like um, too narcissistic or something. I, I just didn't want to write this story that was just about my own little story. And the book, as of now, is not a sort of grand sweeping book that's like, and in 1996, this happened. You know, it, <laughs> it's a small book that is my own story. But my goal was to kind of weave into the texture of the story these kind of larger ideas about this yeah. moment in time and what Salinger means to people and who Salinger was and what his work um, imparts to the world, you know? Mm. And, and so it's, um, it, it's fascinating because it's, um, you, it's 1996, which is not that long ago. But it really has this sense of nostalgia. It really, it's, it could, uh, there are many passages in the book which could have been set in the 1940s or 1950s. Um, yes. And, and is that deliberate on, on your part or is that the, the world you live in or what is that? Um, it was not deliberate. I mean, I really was in a way, um, recording what happened Mm. um and so I did work and for listeners I did work in this office where you know I got to work on the first day so uh, well just to step back I I got this job almost by accident um I really didn't know what I wanted to do I had dropped out of grad school I was actually working as a 
production assistant on a Barbara Streisand film. Um, another job that I had fallen into, a friend of mine said, hey, do you want to work on a film? And I, um, it's not clear in the book, but I'm a huge movie buff. As I said, my father was an actor, a former actor, and he was a huge movie buff. I grew up, you know, sort of surrounded by films, spent a lot of time in Hollywood, whatever. And um, and I was like, yes, I'd love to do that. And um, it was a horrible job. And so another, a friend of a friend basically said, you know, gave me a card and said, why don't you go work in publishing? So I was sent on an interview at this agency. The placement officer, the sort of headhunter said to me, you need to know how to type for this job. She didn't even explain why. Um, but everyone used computers at this point, and at least in America in 1996. Um, I don't know, in Australia, did they? I think so. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I mean, I was in the UK and in all my interviews in the UK, everyone was like, that's completely insane that they use typewriters in 1996. So I think in most places in the Western world, yeah. they use computers. So um, she, she didn't say, oh, you're going to have to use a typewriter. But I went on the interview and, um, and as the, the headhunter had told me, um, my boss did indeed say, you know, can you type? You need to know how to type for this job. And as instructed, I lied and said, yes, I can type 65 words per minute. And I could not. And um, I got to work on the first day and my boss showed me this enormous typewriter, like a room-sized typewriter. It was 30 or 35 years old. And, um, you know, it made as much noise as like a 30 or 35-year-old car. Yeah. And, um, and she then said, oh, do you know how to use a dictaphone? I had no idea what that was. Some of you listening might know what it is. Um, I had never heard of this. It's a machine you know, it's basically a tape recorder, essentially. And so my boss would dictate letters into this um, recording device and then would hand me the cassette tapes and I would type what she had recorded rather than taking live dictation. So it, in the 50s, a dictaphone was considered this like modern mm. piece of technology that allowed you to not have to take live dictation um, and, um, you know, and use shorthand. <laughs> I'm so yeah, so, and so those are the elements. So you see me at this job, you know, yeah. typing and typing. I think, and it was completely out of step with what every other office in the Western world was doing at that moment. You know, I, I must admit, I've come full circle and gone a bit retro. I've just recently purchased in the last sort of month two typewriters. <laughs> and do, you, do you type on them? One of them, I one of them I don't because it's 1921, and the other one I do because it's 1970, so it's still totally workable. My neighbours, I don't think, really appreciate it. However, <laughs> is it so loud? Yeah, it's pretty loud. <laughs> so, do you use it to write your own work, like? I have been using it more to um, get the flow happening. And then once the flow is happening, I go back to my computer. So yeah, see, that makes total sense to me. Mm. I, I can imagine doing that. Mm. So now the documentary catalyzed the research, which led you to realizing, you know, this book could happen because there's a larger story. So when you decided, okay, I'm going to write this memoir, you were spending most of your time um, up until then writing for the magazines and, you know, writing profiles. Um, so how did you change gears? They're totally different types of writing. You, you can't approach it the same way. How did you go from these shorter pieces which have a finite period that you're writing for magazines to then spending two years on a book did how did you just chop and change because presumably you still wrote for some of the magazines in that period well actually I mean there there's a whole other chunk of my life um which is that I spent many years working on this novel mm. um A Fortunate mm. Age which is 
Um, so my inclination as a, a fiction writer is, is very much towards sort of like big social realist novels like Zadie Smith, Jonathan Franzen, like mm. that kind of thing. Um, there's an American writer named Jean Corlitz who I love who writes these big novels. Um, and um, I love like the Victorians, the Foresight Saga is my favorite books. I love Dickens and mm. Eliot, that kind of thing. So I... Um, I was, you know, working on this novel that was kind of social realism, also a comedy of manners, both of those things together, um, that was huge. Multiple characters, big span of time, um, you know, switching perspectives, different generations, and, um, you know, ridiculously ambitious. And um, I um, had worked on it probably for in total, maybe five or six years. And I, my life went through different phases as I worked on it. So it, I started working on it while I was a freelance magazine writer. Mm. Um, during that time, I actually decided, I made the choice to um, give up a lot of my magazine work and just do, um, I, I wrote a lot for the New York Times. Mm. Um, so I had a kind of, like a series, a kind of contractual series that I wrote for them. Um, so I basically decided that I was going to take a part-time job at a magazine, an online magazine, as an editor, as their books editor, like editing book mm. reviews. And that was two days a week. And then I would do my work for the New York Times and then I would work on my novel. And, um, and so that actually made my life easier because I kind of had this more structured life. Yeah. And, um, and I, um, so, but I had years working on this novel. And then um, in, at the end of, I think, 2007, Right at the end of 2007, I sold the novel and I was, you know, lucky enough or whatever you would call it to get enough money um, to live on for yep. quite some time. Um, and I actually had a full-time job. The, the magazine that I worked at two days a week had hired me full-time as their editor-in-chief. So I kept that job um, for six months, seven months after I sold the novel and then realized that I actually couldn't sustain it because um, some listeners may not realize this, but after you sell a book... Um, you know, you there's a significant amount of work that has to be done. It really is a kind of full-time job. Mm. So I had to do a rewrite of it. Um, and there, the publicity type work for it started right away. You know, you're sort of writing articles and stuff primarily to publicize the book. And it just is endless. So um, I was also pregnant with my second child at the time, throwing up. And, like, I was at work <laughs> throwing up. I would go to meetings and I had to run to the bathroom to throw up. And that kind of thing. So, um so anyway, I um, so there was that whole period. So I knew what it was to work on a project, and in fact, this book, um, the way that so I, you know, I had started work on this second novel, which is equally big in scope as my first one. Um, it's called Money or Love. It's very much about the um, economic crisis of two thousand eight, the kind of aftermath of it, and um, my. Um, my agent, actually, one of the ways that she convinced me to write this memoir was she said, you know, you're a magazine writer. Just think of this as an extended magazine piece. Um, just get it done quickly. Let's get it out there. And my editor, you know, who, you know, has worked with so many writers, I mean, as is my agent, but my editor knew it was going to be bigger than an extended magazine <laughs> piece. But they still, they still actually ultimately gave me just 11 months to do it. Because they were thinking, you know, it was short, it was focused, it wouldn't take me that long. And they were, of course, wrong. Mm. Um, though my editor said, when I, when I asked for an extension, she said, we knew you weren't going to write this in 11 months. Nobody writes a book in 11 months. 
you know, unless it's like a celebrity biography or something that has to get out there. Um, and they gave me an extra six months. So it really was a, about a year and a half that it took me to write it. Right. Um, so for me, the funny thing is that that actually seemed really, really short. Oh. Um, a really small amount of time because it had taken me all these years to write my novel. Um, and it felt like a very focused, um, intense period. Um, and in a way it, it felt kind of, there was a way in which it was so easy because it was just this one story. And there were these competing threads of the story. And especially during, there was this kind of six month period where I worked on it very, very intensively like I would wake up at four in the morning and write for a few hours before my kids woke up, bring them to school, go to my office, work very intensively until I had to pick them up, you know, bring them home. I couldn't work while I was with them, but the minute they went to sleep, I would work again. It was just completely wow. ever present in my brain. I couldn't think about anything else. You know, um, I couldn't really write anything else. It was all I could do. I would occasionally take breaks to write book reviews. I was sort of able to do that, but even that was hard for me. And I would have, because um, there, there are these different threads of the plot. There's kind of like my home life with, I have this sort of pseudo-socialist, pseudo-intellectual, would-be novelist, mm. awful Norman Mailer type boyfriend. <laughs> so there's that thread of the story. There's the office story. There's the Salinger story. There's my parents. And I had like all those threads on post-it notes. Mm-hmm. And um, and I would kind of like put up all the, they're color coded and I would put them all up on this board in my office and try to rearrange them, trying to sort of have the different stories, have there be an even allotment of each thread, thread of the story. And yeah, so in a way it was um, almost the opposite, like your question, um, mm. what my experience was almost the opposite, that this felt like this very brief, um, intense um, process of working on the book. And I actually really liked it. And I'd love to sort of do that with my next novel, just kind of hunker down and just work on it and do yeah. nothing else. So you know, obviously the advice regarding the time frame worked, but it, did, the, did the advice really work in terms of, you said yourself that when you wrote, when you write some of the magazine pieces and the book reviews, you don't even use the word I. But this is yeah. full of the word I, and obviously it is about is it, it is about you, and you have to um, take a completely different, non-objective approach to it. Was that hard to get into? It was very hard. It was unbelievably difficult. How did you do it then? What did you? What techniques did you kind of help oh yourself with? Oh my god! Well, I spent a lot of time marveling at the world we live in, honestly, just as a preamble, in which, you know, I have tons of friends who are writers um, and they're on social media like every minute of the day, you know, just telling people everything about their lives. And I know that those are constructed persona, right? But I still, like, that is so not me. You know, I I am on social media, but I it, it takes me days to come up with a Facebook status update to figure out what I want to say. I just, I am not a confessional oversharing person. And so in a way that's, that's how this book worked for me. I mean, I, I couldn't figure out what the style and tone was because I'm not that person who's going to be like, blah, here's everything. And then I went to the bathroom and, you know, and, that night we were in bed and we were having sex or whatever. Like I can't even, you know, joke about it because it's so not me. I'm not, I don't want to reveal those bedroom or bathroom details. I don't want to 
go into, you know, these kind of things that feel very private to me. Yes. So, you know, and I, so I, that's not just it, but I just couldn't figure out who was the I of the story. And so two things happened. There were two things that pushed me over the edge. One was that I had not read a lot of memoir mm. because I didn't like it. I, you know, in the early sort of heyday of memoir, um, which was, you know, in the late 90s and early aughts, that's when I was first starting out as a book critic. And I was assigned some memoir, and I usually did not like them. They felt shapeless to me. Um, they felt self-indulgent, um, as though the writers um, were so convinced that every single detail of their life was interesting. That uh, you know, the tough choices were not being made about what to include, what not to include. Um, and also, there was the, for me, there was this odd inability to suspend disbelief. Because there would be these recreated conversations from when the writer was four or something. And I would think, what? You know, this is obviously artifice. This is not real. This person has recreated this. Why is this being presented as fact? You know, I'm not saying that I wasn't thinking it was fiction, but I was just, it was hard for me to get around. So anyway, um, I, but memoir has changed in those years. You know, I think there was a period in the late 90s and early aughts when publishers were just like, memoir sales, you know, memoirs become bestsellers. And the Liars Club was a huge bestseller. We're going to sign up any memoir about like, you know, abuse or mm. crazy families. And so, you know, memoir is really different now and it's evolved as an art form. So I um, basically spent, I don't know, a year just reading every memoir that sounded even vaguely interesting to me. Mm. I asked friends what memoir to read. And um, at the risk of sounding really cranky, there was still a lot that I didn't like for those exact reasons that they felt shapeless. But then there were these memoirs, you know, there were maybe a half dozen of them that were, you know, as brilliant as my favorite novels that had the kind of depth of characterization. The kind, and that was the other thing about, you know, the sort of bad memoir was that there was a kind of um, inability to create a character other than the eye of the book, as yeah. if the eye was so interesting. That, and then the other characters just felt like these quirky, you know, cardboard cutouts. Mm. And so the great memoirs that I read, you know, of which there really are many. What, that, are, some, what are some of them? Um, okay, so my absolute favorite was a memoir by the writer um, Claire um, Dederer, or uh, her name might be pronounced Dederer, um, D-E-D-E-R-E-R, um, called Poser. Mm, yeah, and, the yoga yes. one. Mm. Is that a big seller in Australia yeah, as well? Yeah, it's very quite popular. Mm. Yeah, so I love that. And it's called My Life in 23 or 26. Mm. I actually just gave my cop. I've gone through several copies. I keep buying them and then I give them away because I love them so much. Mm. I've read it probably four or five times. And um, it's, um, it, it's so interesting because it's not like, oh, here's this fascinating thing that happened to me. It's just a book about this woman's life and about the world that she lives in. And it reads like the, you know, your favorite novel, yeah. like a, a George Eliot novel, anything. It, it is, it is truly like a canonical work. It's, mm. it's just, she's just a brilliant writer and her, it's hilarious. It's heartbreaking. It's just wonderful. It's not really about yoga. Mm. It's just about her life. Um, I also loved a book that I'm sure was a huge bestseller in Australia. It was huge here. It's called Wild by Cheryl Strayed. Mm -hmm. um, it's about a woman hiking the Pacific Crest Trail. Wonderful. 
And um, then, of course, Joan Didion's memoir, Blue Nights, about her daughter's death. That had a profound effect on me for stylistic reasons. I mean, all of them did. But um, it's a very sparse book. Mm. Um, And she, Didion, you know, is a very cool, kind of cold writer. And yet that book, I was just sobbing through it. She describes these kind of big emotions, or she doesn't describe them. She portrays them in this very sparse way. And it's because of that kind of sparseness that they hit you so profoundly. Mm. And I realized, with all three of these, I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to have the kind of cool, sparse um, element of the Didion, but I also want the kind of humor of the other two books, and I want this to read like a novel. Um, I wanted wanted the coolness of the Didion, but the warmth of the Detterer Mm. and the Strayed. And, um, you know, and I think my own book is not really like either of those three, but I learned so much from them. And, um, and so, um, I read them and I realized what memoir could be. I yeah, thought like yeah. the, you know, memoir can, that was really what happened. I, I realized memoir can be as great as a great novel and that it unlocked something for me. Mm. Um, so, so the the book, um, the memoir is set at a, at a literary agency. Can you tell us how you developed your own relationship with your own literary agent? How did that happen? Because many people are interested in that, you know, breakthrough moment, if you know what I mean. Yes, of course. And it, it's a really, it's kind of a funny story. Um, it, it's funny now. It was kind of sad at the time. So, um, okay. So as I mentioned, I published this essay in a glossy magazine um, about answering Salinger's fan mail years ago, you know, 12 odd years ago. And, um, so that essay, um, uh, is what got me my agent. I was not looking for an agent. I was in the very early stages of my novel and I knew from working at agencies, I'd worked at two agencies. I went to another one after the period in the book. Um, I knew that I was not even remotely ready to find an agent that you really need to finish your novel. Um, <laughs> And before you find an agent, this is something that people ask me all the time. Some stranger wrote to me on Facebook the other day saying, you know, I'm a hundred pages into my novel, you know, should I start looking for an agent? I think I should. And I was like, no, you shouldn't. Cause the agent doesn't want to see it until it's totally done. So, um, I wasn't even thinking about an agent. Um, though I was, you know, writing for magazines and I knew that there was a way in which it could be helpful to me to have an agent, but really it was not something I was thinking about. So I wrote this essay. And um, it was for this magazine that's now folded that I'm just not going to name because of, you'll see why in a second. Um, and I turned it in. It was a very long essay. It was 6,000 words. And I had, like, my blood was in this essay. It had, as I said, it had been a really difficult experience for me to revisit this kind of difficult year in my life. And um, I turned it in, and they did not respond to me. Um, and so I wrote to them and I said, you know, I mean, time went by. Usually you turn in an essay to a magazine that they write to you right away. Yep. You know, I had turned it in late and they were not hounding me for it. They didn't seem to care. I wrote and said, I'm going to be late. They said, sure, or maybe they didn't respond. So I kept writing to them and saying, you know, what's going on with this? And they were barely responding to me. And no, I was not a famous writer, but I still, you know, I I was known as a book critic at this point. And I felt like they were really not treating me particularly well. That was, it's not okay to do that. You know, I worked as a magazine editor too, and I would never have done this to anyone. And um, finally, I got a note from a different editor 
not, not the person I've been working with saying, yeah, you know, we like this essay, but we might want to cut it in half. And I thought, what? You know, no. And um, I wrote back and said, I'm not sure that's okay. Didn't hear from them. More time went by. Didn't hear from them. I wrote saying, is the essay scheduled? So months by this point had gone by. Months. Mm -hmm. And I finally wrote to um, a friend of mine and said, um, you know, you know, I think that this essay could work for many different magazines, like maybe The New Yorker, maybe Harper's, you know, um, maybe The Atlantic. I think I should pull this. And um, this friend who, um, you know, Happened, was an agent, but not would not be the appropriate agent for me, mm. said, you're totally right. They have not responded to you. Here's my friend at The New Yorker. Um, you know, maybe you should send it to him. And I had actually met this person um, once. We had spoken together at a conference. I was well known enough that I was speaking in front of people about yeah. my, you know, and this magazine was totally ignoring me. So I, I wrote to this man he, who was an editor at The New Yorker and explained the situation. And he said, yes, I want to see that. He read it in a day, and he said, we want this essay. We do want to cut it a little bit. Here's how, but we want it. Here's your contract. We want to run it next month. Wow. And, and then he said, um, you have to get an agent because the minute this hits, people are going to ask you about turning it into a book, and I bet they're going to you know, want to option the film rights. Yeah. And then he said, this is my agent. Why don't you contact her? So, um, and he said, it's not just that she's my agent. I think that she's the right person for you. You know, you're working on a novel. She does fiction and nonfiction. I just think, you know, based on our interactions, you know, because he had met me, we had done this thing together. I think you're going to love her. So I wrote to her. She responded immediately. She read the essay immediately. We talked on the phone. I loved her. She just was brilliant. We had so much, uh, our sensibility was just very much shared. She also... You know, an agent has to be a business person, but they also have to have a literary sensibility. Yeah. And ours was very much the same. She it was truly an intellectual, mm-hmm. and she also was just kind and warm and funny and sweet. And I just felt that I could talk to her so easily that we were very much on the same page. And that, you know, unlike... I. I talked to one other agent um, at this time. A friend said to me, why don't you talk to my agent? And I went and talked to the agent, and that agent seemed much more like just purely a business person. Yeah. And, um, and so um, I signed with her immediately. I just loved her. Um, right. and, um, and the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So to, what has been the reaction, though, ha- I- from your boss of the agency, you know, the boss who is your boss in the book, um, in real life, uh, you know, quick Google. I, mean, I don't think you actually name your boss in the book, do you? I've no. gone back through many pages thinking, have I missed it? Have I missed it? So, which is, you know, a wonderful literary technique in itself. But, you know, a quick Google is very easy to find, you know, yes. what the, the yes, agency one second to find yeah, out. that you worked at and, and, and the name of your boss. Has there been a reaction? Are you still in contact? Um, no, you know, I was a little bit in contact with her. And also there's a character in the book named Hugh, yes. um, who's kind of like, the office manager, but also kind of like the curator of the agency, you know, because so much of their work is dealing with these kind of old, you know, dead clients, estates. Yeah. 
And, and I just of, see Stanley um, Tucci playing him in a movie. But anyway, that's just my Oh, picture. my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> I was, like somebody just – I was just visiting family, and they were playing um, – I just went on my American tour, and most of my family's in um, – California in the kind of San Francisco area and they all came to one of my readings all my cousins mm-hmm. and one of them was saying who's gonna play you and no one could agree <laughs> on anyone and um and then they said you know who do you think should play the other characters and the one character one that I knew for sure was I was like I think that Brian Cranston should oh, play oh yes of course <laughs> <Is that still laughs> in Australia um, I just could picture him and the yeah. truth is that that man actually he really did actually literally look like him um yes, really Yes. <laughs> so, um, so uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I was in touch with him. He was such a kind and lovely, wonderful person. And, um, and I was in touch with him a bit. I was in touch with my boss a bit. And then we fell out of touch as you do when this essay came out years ago, 12 odd years ago. Um, um, I heard from the Hugh person, um, saying that my boss was tickled by the essay, um, and she never got in touch. I mean, she didn't use email. She still does not use email, um, from what I've heard. So it's a little bit harder to be in touch, you know, it's not like she's going to pick up the phone and call me. Um, but with the book, I've had no response. And, you know, I guess it's four years ago now that this other essay, which I wrote for Slate came out, I had no response to that. And that became a radio piece for NPR, a little radio piece. No response to that. And then it became this BBC documentary, which came out a year later in 2011. And there was no response to that either. And I think that my boss is just of the generation um, that feel, you know, she's very much of the kind of gentleman's club school of publishing and um, business and what have you and values privacy above all. So the idea of, you know, responding to anything, it would just be tacky to her, ghost, you know? So even yeah. if she read it and she thought that she was portrayed as a monster, which I don't think she is, or I hope not, like I really wrote this with a lot of no, love. No, not at all. Um, I don't, even if she felt like she was portrayed like the boss in The Devil Wears Prada, I don't, she's not the kind of person who would sue me or say anything, because mm-hmm. in her mind that would make it worse. It's very gauche. <laughs> yes, yes. Mm-mm-mm. So tell us now, because obviously the book is out, it's doing really well, and you know you're you're doing some promotion and publicity, but you are working on money and love. How far into it are you? And like, so what stage are you at with it? I'm sort of at the awkward stage. I'm at like the age 13 acne, you know, your arms and legs are growing too fast and you're tripping over yourself because your feet are so big stage where, um, so I, I'm at, okay. I, I'm about a hundred pages into it, you know, in terms of the beginning of the book, I've got this hundred pages down and that hundred pages have actually, and this is totally not the way I normally work, but because of the way, because of my, this book being interrupted by another book and all sorts of things, that chunk of the book has been read by some different people and I've read pieces of it um, aloud to audiences because of just having to, you know, at like teaching at a writing conference and there's a reading and I have to read from new fiction, that kind of thing. Um, and um, so it's sort of more out in the world, which I mentioned this because I'm usually a very private writer, but but pieces of this, you know, have kind of uh, been seen by a lot of people and read by a lot of people. Um, but then I also, so, but at the same time, there are two other things I'll mention. So this novel started off 
um, with my actually thinking of it as short stories that would be very strongly linked together, like sort of a little bit in the manner of um, Elizabeth Strout's Olive Kittredge, um, if you know this book, but um, even more strongly linked. Like they would, it would really feel like a novel. There would be an actual plot running through it, but it would follow a few different people who all live um, in a small town in upstate New York that's been kind of destroyed by the recession. Um, but then what happened to me is what, what definitely sometimes happens to people, like this, this probably happened to some listeners, um, this one particular set of characters kind of began to overtake the others. Like it was like a gerbil eating its babies. And, um, and I'm, I'm really interested in the other characters still. And I, so I'm now at this stage um, where I'm not totally sure what's going to happen. It's that, that stage that's really exciting yeah. where you're like, oh, something huge is going to happen here, but I'm not totally sure. So there's a lot of anxiety. Yeah, a bit scary too. Bit yes, scary too. exactly. <laughs> and I also have a little bit in, because I've almost been on break from it for really three years. And so I've had to go back to it. I've had periods where I've gone back to it. Um, but I have also, and I'm almost scared to say this out loud, um, I've a little bit reconceived of the structure of it. Um, I've, I've always been obsessed with the novel, um, the age of innocence, Wharton's the age of innocence. And so, but I'd not, I'd thought of that novel really more as a doomed love story. And, um, I'm sure pretty much all of the listeners out there have read it cause it's such a classic, but, um, so I won't ramble on about it, but I reread that novel about a year and a half ago, actually, because of a sort of big, big events in my own life. I made some huge changes in my own life that were very difficult and I kept thinking about it and I reread it and I've read it, you know, many, many times, but I hadn't read it in a few years. And I realized that the backdrop of that novel is the banking crisis of, I guess it's 1879 um, that, you know, sort of destroyed the economy of New York and thrust all of these upper middle class and wealthy sort of New York elite into a really rough financial situation. And it had not occurred to me. And so that novel is, you know, very sort of tightly structured and is much more like this memoir of mine. It's much more kind of one person's story set against a social backdrop. So now this is so scary for me to say, but I actually feel like even though I have these hundred pages that are really kind of done, you know, they're down, I've worked them and I could go forward. There's part of me that wants to rip them apart and start over. (laughs) I know, I know. And I think it'll be woven in, in a way, but I think I might, you know, you're a novel is so much about the entry point. And right now the entry point for the story, you know, the first line of the story of the novel, and you can be able to tell how long I've worked on this and how much I've worked it, that I've memorized it. The first line of the story is, after years of plenty, they had nothing, nothing. And it begins with this woman, um, you know, who is barely keeping her family together. Like all day, she's just fending off calls from creditors, um, you know, or debt. Like she's in debt dramatically. Like her family's lost all their money. They've been keeping it together for years and now it's all about to fall apart. And there's part of me that wants to go back and have this come later and start before the crisis in the way that the age of innocence does and have the love story be the primary thread rather than the money story. 
Wow. Well, I wait with bated breath to see what happens <laughs> in the end with, you know, the outcome of, of the next book. But, um, you know, honestly, I think I could talk to you for hours, but um, we, we should probably wrap up now. So, look, thank you so much for, for chatting to us. I know that listeners will be, um, you know, really interested in what you have to say. The book is brilliant. It's, pro- it's definitely the best memoir I've read this year, if not the best book I've read this year. I've, I've loved it. So thank you so much for your time today. Really oh my God, appreciate thank it. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Thanks so much, Joanna. Well, I really enjoyed talking to Joanna. I just thought it was fascinating just to yeah, listen great to interview. her. Yeah, writing process and everything. But what we have is something um, new for our listeners. We have a giveaway. We have four Woo-hoo. copies of My Salinger Year to give away to our readers. And all you need to do is tell us what was the funniest thing that happened to you in your first job? And we'll pick the four that we like the best or the most creative and um, we will send you a copy. So and how can, do we do that? Well, go to the show notes the, and it'll all be explained there. So that's writerscentercomau slash podcast. And obviously look for the post about Joanna's, um, Joanna Rakoff and My Salinger Year. And that will all be explained there. So what was the funniest thing that happened to you in your first job and uh, you could win a copy of My Salinger Year. So let's move on to our web pick or app pick for this week. What is it, Al? It's, <laughs> this is just for you, Val. Okay, really? specifically for you. I saw this and I thought I need to get this for Val. <laughs> so it's the Quirky Writer. And it's a typewriter-inspired mechanical keyboard. So it's a Kickstarter project. It's been fully funded. And it's basically a keyboard that looks like an old-school typewriter. So it's, oh, you can, it's, a, it's a USB, Bluetooth-enabled, vintage typewriter-inspired mechanical keyboard. So you can add it to your collection of typewriters and you can sit there and pretend that you are Hemingway <laughs> even while you are writing a Microsoft Word document. <laughs> That's Perfect. fantastic. I Isn't love it. Because you can attach it to your yeah, your yeah. laptop or your desktop and it looks just like a vintage typewriter. We'll put a picture in the show notes. I love yep. it. I'm and you can uh, well you'll have it's gonna ship by August two thousand and fifteen. Oh. So you'll have to put it on your wish list. <laughs> I know, you've got a while to wait. Okay, <laughs> anti-climax. Oh, sorry. Well, it's a, it's a Kickstarter thing, you know. Like, There's enough people out there that want one that they've funded it to the tune of $129,164. Good Lord. Okay. So, yeah, there I, you go. That's all right. I think I'll wait till it's actually available so now that I know it exists. <laughs> okay, what's our working writer's tip this week? Well, it's based on, um, we have on the Australian Writers' Centre blog, a post all about author trademarks. Ah, yes, that's right, because um, one of our listeners um, uh, emailed us about this. Yes. Because we were speaking about the importance of trademarking or whether or not you should trademark as an author. So, um, and... uh, let me see, Barry Newman, who's a principal at Armour IP, who are patent and trademark attorneys, very kindly lent their expertise to this blog post. Uh, and we have questions like, can and should an author register a trademark for their own name? And I won't go through the whole post, but I will actually go through this answer because it's pretty interesting. Um, now, an author can, Barry says, that an author can register their own name as a trademark, but really, should they? 
is what he asks as well. Right. In legal terms, a trademark is a sign which is used to distinguish the products of one trade for, for another. So that's how you know you're shopping at David Jones rather than Maya. And an author's name is definitely a trademark in that it's how we know we're buying a Mem Fox book rather than a Richard Scarry book. I love mm. Richard Scarry. Mm, um, so do I. Registering, however, registering a trademark gives one the power to stop another party from using a deceptively similar name in connection with your goods of the same description. So, yes. But the problem for an author is that there are, num- there, there are a number of defences to an allegation of a trademark for an infringement. For example, if your name is actually Mem Fox or if your name is actually Richard Scarry, well, that's your name, you know what I mean? Um, so, well, it's true. And, and, and Do you know of any other Valerie Coos out there? They probably exist. Well, there's definitely another Alison Tate and she's a, fe- um, a features writer oh. and a freelance writer and according to my dad, she's possibly even my second or third cousin or some such thing because he's a family history dude. Um, but yeah, she's, she lives up somewhere near, I think around Byron Bay. I've never met her. We've never spoken, but, but I see my name on articles that I have not written. <laughs> wow. And I assume it's her. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like, as, um, you know, Nikki Jemmel, and my friend's name is Nicole Jemmel, and many people for many years have thought they are one and the same. They're, so they've thought certain things about her because, you know, Nikki Jemmel wrote Bride Strip Bear. Interesting. <laughs> um, you know, about having yes, um, yes, sexy no. cabs and that sort of thing. Um, so, uh, rent. Registering your tra- your name does not prevent another author with the same name from using it on their books anyway, particularly if it's their name. But it will prevent them from using it as their, as their pseudonym. Yeah? Yeah. But there are already laws in place which prevent a person from pretending to be you or associated with you in order to cash in on your reputation. So uh, Barry goes on to answer, um, can an author register a trademark for the name of a book? And if an author wants to find out more about trademarks, where can they look and how much might it cost? So uh, we'll put that link in the show notes as well. But it is an interesting one, particularly, I think, if you think your um, book may turn into a video game or um, have merchandise associated with it or anything like that, you might want to consider what the ramifications are for trademarking. Mm, interesting. Yes. So that brings us to the end of our podcast this week because we know that um, my chat to Joanna was a little bit longer than usual because I just couldn't resist. So what are you going to be doing until we next speak? Um, well, as I mentioned earlier, I'm um, putting together ideas and uh, some things for the Mapmaker Chronicles website and I'm working with the Stella Kelly Exeter from Swish Design on creating that website and I'm really excited. It's um, it's a very, you know, it's fun. <laughs> it's a yeah. bit like writing the, writing the books in the first place. It's fun. So, um, yeah, so that's that'll be, I mean, obviously I'll be doing all that proofing, editing, writing stuff that I do as well. Um, but that's kind of like my little side project at the well, moment, which I'm excited about. That's exciting. I can't wait to see the website because Kelly's wonderful. And Kelly is actually joining our team at the Australian Writers' Centre in Perth. I did not know that. She, how exciting. Yeah, she's going to be teaching how to make your blog beautiful because obviously oh, and she's her expertise. so perfect for that perfect yes fantastic and um on this end i'm very excited because we are launching a new course it is crime and thriller writing now previously we will we 
have had thriller writing as a course, but we've had such an increase in demand from people wanting to write crime fiction. And those two just go together so well that we've decided that um, crime and thriller writing uh, is definitely a goer. We've already got people, you know. That's exciting. I think I might do that one. Mm. I'd love to write a crime novel. I absolutely love them. Yes. Love them. Okay. So. While we're anyway. off fantasizing about writing, yeah, look at us. <laughs> <laughs> totally lost the plot, which is not great for crime writing. But anyway, thank yes. you for listening this week, everyone. Um, and you can find us at Alison. Where can we find you? You can find me at alisontate.com. You can find me at valeriecoo.com, and you can find the show notes at writerscenter.com.au/podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. 